It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, the poker podcast that sings like no one is listening, loves like it's never been hurt, and dances like it may soon be having a meeting with HR. I'm David Lappin, alongside Darrow Kearney, and we are in Malta, where we just closed the curtain on another phenomenal stop of the Unibet Open Tour. This week we'll be sitting down with high roller, broadcaster, and Women in Poker Hall of Fame inductee Maria Ho. We'll also be talking to EPT Barcelona third place finisher and Millions Barcelona runner-up Adam Owen. Adam will also join Dara to give us a mixed game tip in Strategy Corner. Ian will deliver what I'm guessing will be a smug as fuck new segment, but first. Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. There is no doubt that preparation plays a key role in success. Yes, of course, there are outliers, but consistent high-level performance relies on a high degree of preparation on a number of fronts. Dara, you were an ultra-runner, the physical training for which was gruelling. As a poker player, there's obviously far less toll on your body, but I think it's fair to say that physical fitness is important, particularly during an online or live series. Many of our listeners were grinding the big online series that have just finished, and of course, Unibet have their online series starting next week. Can you give them some tips for keeping physically fit? Yeah, I do think physical fitness is really important, uh, which might seem kind of counterintuitive, given that the job of playing an online series is sitting at a desk, in a chair, at your computer. But... You know, you're doing it for long hours and you will get tired. When it comes to the physical fitness, like there's different types of physical fitness. And I think a lot of poker players tend to focus on sort of what I would call bodybuilding f- physical fitness, where they go to the gym and they, li- they lift lots of weights. Oh, yeah, that's what I do loads of, Dara. I'm, I'm all about that. You're a real gym bunny these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I actually think that, that's, that, that that might actually not help at all. It might, might even be unhelpful. It doesn't build stamina. What it does do is build a lot of muscles that need to be fed um, fairly frequently and you're going to get grumpy if, if you're hungry so I think if you're if you want to just focus on what's going to actually help you improve as a poker player you should basically train the way the distance runners train and that's that, that will build stamina and that stamina will translate not just to being able to run longer distances or cycle longer distances or row or whatever your your exercise of choice is but also actually being able to, to focus for a long time without getting tired that's great advice. Another area that ties in with exercise, I guess, of course, is diet. Uh, what advice would you give players on the types of foods, the portions, and maybe the timings of when they should eat, bearing in mind that a lot of them are playing quite late into the night? Yeah, I think there's two aspects we can come at it from this. The, 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 the obvious mistake is to eat a huge meal in the middle of playing, and you even see this live where people go off on the dinner break and eat an enormous steak and come back and practically fall asleep at the table. I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting all these right. So... I think what you want to do is you want to eat relatively light meals uh, before you play. Um, Also, the type of food you eat is important. If you gobble down a few Mars bars or something like that, you'll you'll, you'll get that immediate rush, but then you'll get the sugar dump later. You're better off focusing on slow-release carbohydrates, um, you know, that mostly come from fruits, it has to be said. So if you eat a fruit-rich breakfast, that energy will gradually be released over the day rather than coming all at once. I think in terms of eating then while you're actually playing, you're better to be snacking and grazing reasonably constantly rather than have a big meal at some point in the uh, in the session. You don't want to get hungry because when it's 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 personal. Some people don't respond too badly to hunger, but other people, you know, they get angry when they're hungry. They get rash. They ma- they start making uh, rash decisions that they wouldn't otherwise make. So you never want to allow that possibility to creep into your game. Some more excellent advice there. Finally, mental preparedness is, of course, huge. Mental fatigue going into the 15th hour of an online session or after, I don't know, 10 consecutive days of playing is pretty common. Some players do meditation, some study, some probably indulge in other forms of relaxation during their downtime so they're fresh. Uh, With the money being given out at the end of a long evening and potentially so much of it on the line, one mistake due to a tired brain could be hugely costly. What steps do you take to combat this? I think it's personal, so I can't uh, speak for everyone, but my own um, routine is when I get up, I usually exercise straight away and that sort of wakes me up for the day, gets oxygen to the brain. And as I said, the exercise that I do is is running rather than weightlifting. And then I eat my light fruit-rich breakfast and then I relax for a little while and then I start thinking about poker and then I actually play. And I think that's kind of, that mirrors the way... Um, I approached it when I was a runner, which was uh, you you needed a warm up, but you didn't want to tire yourself out during the warm up. I'm suspicious of people who put too much time into their 
pre-game routine. I think they might be setting themselves up for a fall to, uh, to be tired uh, later on um, in the session. I am human. Like if 16 hours into a session, I, I can start feeling tired and I can, you know, even subconsciously, you kind of just want it to be over. And that's a dangerous thought to have in your mind because you should be focusing on, on every decision and making all the best decisions that you can. What I always do in that in those situations is I just remind myself that these are the decisions, these are the most important decisions that I will make and they're decisions that are worth the most money. Like if I make a horrendous decision the first hand of a tournament, the worst that can happen is I lose a buy-in. So say I'm playing the um, the, the Supernova, okay, that's 100 euro gone down the drain and that's, that's not very nice. But I could make a, a bad decision on a final table, which is actually 20 or 30 buy-ins and that undoes a lot of good work. So I just focus and remind myself of how important each decision is to make sure that I give it my best efforts. Great stuff. Well, there you have it. A few tips on how to prepare for big online series there and an admission from Dara that he is in fact human. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just an old decaying piece of meat. We're joined now by Mixed Game Specialist, four-time WSOP final tableist, EPT third place finisher, and now, after a phenomenal result just weeks ago, the Millions Barcelona runner-up. With almost $3 million in live winnings, it is, of course, Adam Owen. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. We are, of course, going to talk about it later on, but first and foremost, a huge congratulations on that result in Barcelona, Adam. Uh, have you come down from cloud nine yet? Photographic and video evidence would suggest you haven't. <laughs> um, I think I'm a little bit coming down from the cloud right now. Uh, it's slowly settling in. Yeah, like a just a huge happy feeling. And then, um, yeah, obviously a bit of a, a, a come down from that. So I'm just chilling out at the moment. I'm back at my parents' house in uh, in Kent, in England, um, just doing absolutely nothing at the moment, and it's great. Yeah, I've really missed doing that. Good for you. It sounds like a, a well-earned rest. So, a couple of months ago, we interviewed four-time bracelet winner George Danzer. George talked about his specialisation in mixed games, of course, you're very similar, uh, saying that each year in his 20s, he'd lock himself away for a month and learn a new game. How did you pick up the different games? Okay, well, it initially started... Um, we found we found the rules to all the games. We found uh, we found some free rolls, and I say we, it's my friends at, at school, um, and we basically just played these free rolls because we didn't have anything else to do, and uh, played played the games and learned, learned the games and played each other all the time. And then eventually, I just got talking to better and better players, learning from them, sharing information with them. Uh, just a, a mishmash basically of picking up things and doing my own work and trying out new things and uh eventually yeah just across all the games i think i'm pretty confident in most most of the games now still have a few weak ones your first big live score did come in a non-hold'em event when you got third in the 10k raz championships at the wsap for 100k in june 2015 i actually remember watching that final table it was a pretty small uh, elite field how much soft money is there in those tournaments and how big do you reckon your edge is over the competition? Well, I think that particular, that exact tournament was quite a, uh, a polar field. You had some of the best in the world at Raz. I remember quite a lot of the Russians particularly were there that year. Just the, t the top guys online who are playing the highest stakes on stars. They, they're really good. And I, I'd consider myself a tier or two tiers just below them. Um, and then you got guys who are good at the mix. They they know all the games. They play them pretty well. Um, a lot of them kind of like disregard Raz as a skill game, which I would strongly disagree with. But I can see where they're coming from. You know, it's a very it's a binary hand ranking system. It seems to be pretty easy how to play, and I, I can see why people would think it's a just a card catching contest. Uh, and then you have people who just don't have a chance really but uh yeah i, I fancy, fancy my chance in those i think uh specifically raz tournaments are something uh that i've adjusted to pretty well um uh, partly by having quite a few deep runs online and like in, in raz tournaments i think i'm pretty good pretty competitive in those in august 2016 you came third in ept barcelona for 650k um in what was the biggest ept ever that event was won by an eccentric young player Sebastian Malek whose behavior in the final table on the final hand rather was so ludicrous it went viral how did that result change your life and 18 months on what are your biggest memories of the tournament uh, yeah it was hugely uh, life-altering it came at a 
great time for me. I hadn't been doing well that, uh, since since a while. Yeah, it, it was it was a huge amount of fun. I had a lot of friends there. Similar to this time, the money was huge, and uh, to get the experience going forwards of, of like a, a, a huge deep run, having to make decisions for heaps of money uh, against other people who are doing the same, that was really important. I think for uh, for other deep runs I've had, I flew a few friends out over to rail uh like i did this time in barcelona and um yeah just just the most fun and um well i i've i've run extremely well in barcelona the last four times i've been there with with backing as well so it, it kind of feels standard to uh to have someone on the final day uh it's, it's happened the last four times now so yeah uh, people should be queuing up to send me their action at face or markdown for summer. For summer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adam, last summer at the World Series, you came third in the 3,333 online bracelet event for 130k. Another third. It was, in fact, your 11th third place finished live. You've obviously won plenty of tournaments online and you've won a few Mickey Mouse live tournaments as well. One of which we saw you flip for a trophy with our good friend Dara Davey. Is your inability to close a live tournament playing on your mind at all? <laughs> yeah, that was great memories in the Isle of Man with, uh, with Dara and everybody watching. Yeah, um, I've had a lot of seconds, thirds, and others. I wouldn't say it's playing on my mind. Like uh, a lot of a lot of them were in mixed games, and a lot of my volume is uh, heads up and short-handed. Feel pretty comfortable in those. Uh, I've played a lot of heads up poker, short-handed poker. I'm not a genius at heads up as you know, we might find out later on, but I, st <laughs> I still feel I'm all right at, at, um, at heads up two card. So it's not really playing on my mind. Against Pascal, I knew that I was playing against a, a very good heads up player. So I, I tried to up the variance and <laughs> make a few out there plays, which, uh, which a few people have questioned. But, <laughs> but yeah, overall, I would not say it's, a, it's something that enters my mind when I'm when I'm coming deep, other than when I get trolled by my friends, tell me I'm <laughs> no. guaranteed to lose. So. Or, or presenters on a, a podcast when you come as a guest. Yeah, exactly. Also at last year's World Series, you had the good fortune to play with our former guest, Phil Helmut. And I don't think I'm wrong in saying that he lost it with you a few times. One particularly full-on poker bat moment that got some coverage, particularly after he sort of apologized. What was your reaction to that interaction? And how would you describe your own demeanor at the tables? I've got to think back a second here because it's happened a few times. Uh, deep in Raz tournaments with Mr. Helmuth. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he used a lot of expletives, which I, I don't mind. I, I love it. I grew up as a poker fan. I'm still a fan of poker. I love playing poker. And to be berated by Phil Helmuth is kind of, you know, it's the end goal. You know, you've... I mean, what, what, Tonka what said the it? exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved it. It's... Uh, the, the only thing I didn't like is when I, when I was in a hand and, short stack ITM limit games is, isn't the easiest to be uh, thinking on the fly. But yeah, Phil, Phil went after me in 2015 as well, which the, the one that he won. You know, eventually he got all the chips and uh, apologized to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I made some really thin cooldowns against him where you know I, we just got the pay jump and I was by far the shortest stack. So I made like plays that might look ridiculous, but like really if you plug them into a, a calculator, it's, it was very obvious. And then um, I made an insanely thin value bet where I'm showing like his board is clearly better than mine. He checks it to me and I have a couple of bets left. It's basically, he's basically trying to get a free bet, uh, uh, a free street there. So I, I don't allow it. I bet when I know I'm a 60% favorite and that's really what sends him into orbit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one else could really com comprehend that. Um, but uh, a few guys I speak with as of said it was standard and like, a very good situation to do it. Yeah, Phil's actually a very good Raz player. He'd talk all day about how tight he is, but yeah, he gets in there with some, some interesting hands in Raz. He uses his image very well. He's a, a very smart guy. and um, yeah, he's, he's played poker a lot. 
he knows what he's doing in, in most of the games, I would say. For sure. Well, Adam, you're known for both having and being part of Rowdy Rails. We talked about earlier, you almost described it as like a rent-a-rail. You, you sort of, uh, you send up the bat signal and they all come flying. I've seen them <laughs> in 500 quid turbo side events. Uh, I've seen them at an EPT final table. And of course, the Millions Rail was epic. Uh, Darren and I were part of a few too over the years, most memorably Kevin Killeen. Darren, I don't even remember this one, of course, at the that, Dublin yeah. UK IPT final table, when pints were literally, also accidentally, thrown on the loser heads up. Uh, I think it's fair to say that these types of rails divide the poker public. We certainly met a bit of criticism back then. How would you defend the football stand's approach to poker spectating? Well, simply it's excellent. (laughs) It's excellent for poker, in my opinion. Um, Yeah, so I would say my rail were very well behaved up until heads up, which uh, (laughs) may correlate with the alcohol um, consumption curve. Yeah, that's your fault for going so deep. They were expecting yeah, like yeah. A, a sixth place finish and then, you know, they, they could keep it tidy till then. But basically, I could, if, you know, in between hands, as long as you're not insulting the other guy, I think anything goes. You know, credit to Party Poker and uh, the floor staff involved there, casino staff, they let everything go. And um, credit to Pascal, who's a fantastic player and, and a gentleman. He, uh, he, he enjoyed it as well, I think. Uh, he, he said he, he didn't think they were cheering against him. Just, uh, just cheering for me and cheering for poker. You know, it was a great. I think from a neutral point of view, it was a great final table with very good players, very interesting situations, the football atmosphere, and all sorts of songs. Uh, I think, yeah, the the British and yeah, definitely the Irish too. We're we're a little bit. I, I'm I'm quite proud of some of the chances they they uh they threw together. So Pascal had somehow got his shoes wet outside, and uh. My favourite chant was, he's got no shoes, he's going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, and, and Mike Sexton on commentary was joining in with some of these. Which, <laughs> which is, which is, ah, that, that's so good. <laughs> that's, that's, that's so good uh, to hear that. I love it. If, if one of my mates' final tables, it's, you know, we, we get there, we have a large breakfast, we line the stomachs and... Yeah, we, we drink and we sing and we support them. It's uh, I, I think it's good for poker in general, uh, as long as you're not stepping too far out of line. Which uh, maybe for my friend uh, Teddy's victory in Birmingham, I may have overstepped. But uh, <laughs> yeah, as long as you're fine until it's heads up, I, I think you're okay. Uh, a couple of months ago, we hung out at the Aussie Millions, which was easily one of my favorite poker destinations. That was my first time there this year. What are your favorite poker destinations? I, I thought Australia was great as well. Melbourne, the Crown. Aside from a, a few eccentric floor maneuvers and uh, procedures, I, I thought it was a great venue and uh, the city is amazing. Really loved it. Obviously, Barcelona has been ridiculous to me. Um, I had two horses clear, like net worth affecting amounts of makeup, and my two deep runs there, all in different years. So I've had a I've had a great time there. I love the city. I I love. I've, I've just had a great time every time I've been there and just I, I feel absolutely exhausted now but you know, in a good way um, I do like Vegas I, I love the World Series of Poker and I, I could be slaving away for a much better hourly in the, in the cash games and like, fighting there but a, a bracelet is still really important in my opinion so I, I'm going to be playing a full schedule this summer other venues yeah I, I've I haven't really been to a really terrible venue. I've been a lot of places, and I've, I have been to Rosedov. Um, <laughs> I mean, for, I went a little bit before it got famous. Not to sound like a hipster. I we want to keep our knees here, Derry. Be saying that. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't like to speculate on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been I've been a few times um, for a place to play poker. It's it's a great venue uh, to do anything else. Not so much. Uh, I used to go to Belgium quite a lot. It was very close to me on the on the the train under the sea, the Channel Tunnel. So it it, it takes about as long to get there as it does to get to Dusseldorf. So I, I preferred that. I've got a lot of friends in Belgium. Run a stable with a with a Belgian guy. Yeah, had a lot of fun in Belgium. Been, been there six, seven, eight times. Had had fun every time. Good stuff. I feel like at this point I need to do it one of those disclaimers where I say something like uh, the opinions of Darrow Carney are his own, do not reflect the uh, opinions of other members of the show. Um, Adam, you write really well. 
but I think it's fair to say that you're a fair weather blogger at best for backdoor quads. <laughs> uh, any plans to write more? I really enjoy uh, reading when you when you do put pen to paper. Yeah, uh, so this is uh, William Schlebeer at uh, Black Backdoor Quads. I agreed to write some blogs for him, and I haven't done very many. I'll be, I'll be, uh, to be honest, I haven't put in the volume for Will. Do a good one in Barcelona, and I'm sure all will be forgiven. Yeah, <laughs> I'll get in touch with him and see what he thinks. Yeah, I, I quite enjoy writing. If there's, if there's something particularly controversial that I feel, uh, feel I need to get an opinion out there, I'll definitely do that. Um, I'm, I'm very bad at falling into a routine. and I, I know you guys churn out the volume of the blogs and still with excellent quality. So, And, and you, do, you do the show as well, as well as being professional poker players. So I, I really respect that. And I respect the guys on, on Twitch as well, including you, David, who get on there, you know, put themselves out in front of the world and uh, deal with the insane chat as well. <laughs> <laughs> like, be, subjecting yourself to that. Um, subjecting to yourself to I love. I love how you put that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, yeah, I meant to recover that by saying shout out to Twitch. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, I, I shoot I in fairly often to Twitch and I, I see uh, some of the stuff the guys write. I, I, I just couldn't see myself uh, being able to keep going with that. So I, I, I credit guys who can keep in a routine and you know even even do a full time job or a full time yeah a hobby. Like the hours you guys put in is is impressive. So fair play to that. I can't say I'm really doing uh, too much besides poker. I study a fair amount. Um, I've lived with a poker player uh, for the first time. Uh, for the last uh, about 16 months, based myself in Mexico City, so I'm back and forth uh, traveling. So we, we do a lot of poker playing uh, and talk and study. Not not too intensive study. I, people say study, like what are you really doing? Are you watching videos? Are you are you using the solvers? I yeah. We we, we talk about poker a lot generally and, and plug in some calculations. That's basically yeah we, we hung out a bit in Punta Cana last year as well and you had already moved to Mexico at that stage and I have to say you really did a great job in selling Mexico as a place to live like what is it you like about Mexico so much I I like a lot about it um so I live in Mexico City the the weather is great it's like mid-20s most of the time and the time it's like raining a lot it's the time I'm in Vegas actually June and July so I, I love the weather I love the food Mexican food isn't a secret. It's it's fantastic, and I think it's even better in the city than it is most other places, and definitely most other places you find around the world, especially the states. I've I've had Mexican a lot in the states and haven't enjoyed it very often. Um, I like the people. They're very friendly, very uh, kind-hearted generally. Yeah, um, I can I can imagine that's true. When when I when I did the really long distance running um, and I went to world championships. Uh, the Irish team invariably found ourselves hanging out with the Mexicans, even though they didn't often have great English and obviously we had no Spanish, but just in terms of friendliness, you really couldn't do better than the Mexicans. Yeah, they're, they're great people overall and the people to me have been great there and accepting of my lack of Spanish, which is coming along very, very slowly. I should probably put some volume into that. We actually recorded this interview once before. Um, we tried to do it in Australia. That first time was with Dave Byrne instead of David, which was a vast improvement, I have to say. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, my mic had broken in transit on the way to Australia. However, the one outside is we now get to cover your million score, which was an incredible result in a really sick field. Can you talk us through your memories of that final table of death? Yeah, the, the final table was extremely tough. All those guys... The, all those guys are complete sickos. Uh, the only guy I didn't know before the trip was Diogo, the Portuguese fella. And uh, I was assured he's a high-stakes cash player on PokerStars. So, uh, yeah, I felt that I was at a skill disadvantage and thought about how I would combat that and negate that where possible and see if I could abuse how others were, were thinking about me. So... One thing I did was just choose large sizings. And it's something I've always thought about doing against better players. Just them defending less is good. Giving them less room to free bet is an advantage. And actually, before I went to Barcelona, I spoke to one of my friends in Mexico who's doing a lot of solver work and 
you know, software grinding with, with a friend of mine. And I saw them opening like 4.2x of 40 blinds. Um, like, what's, what's going on here? So um, I think that's something that we might see more in the future. So I definitely felt comfortable going over like 2.5x of shallowish stacks, like 30 big stacks. A lot, a lot of the final table I was like ICM handcuffs, so it was pretty clear to me to just play tight. I felt that they perceived me to be fairly concerned about the money, which, yeah, of course, in a vacuum I am, but I'm, I'm just going to try and play good and try and, yeah, you know, I wasn't afraid to take any spot uh, that I thought was good. There are a few situations where I felt that people were opening a little bit light on me or, or just in general. Uh, where where I took a questionable free bet spots and you know, lucky enough they just folded every time, so that was. I gotta say though, uh, Adam, I think that's a bad read by them. Anyone who's played with you and I, I think I've played with you a fair amount live knows that you're not somebody who would be particularly fearful in those situations. I might have targeted you as somebody who recognised that you were up against some serious poker beasts and, and actually you were very modest and you said on, on commentary it, it was very clear that you'd, you'd made that raise call with sevens I think knowing that it was probably a pip or two light but that this was a good spot against these particular guys and I, I think recognising stuff like that is, is really important but I certainly wouldn't have pegged you as someone who was like scared money at all. Well, yeah, uh, I, I would agree with your read in general but... Uh... Maniacal money actually is what I would call you a lot of the time. <laughs> Other than Stevie and Thomas, who I've played a lot of in Belgium, I don't think I've played much of the other guys. And from from what I thought information they'd be getting fed, I would assume that they would think I'm uncomfortable in most situations when it comes to getting the chips in. Maybe not, but it ended up being that you know every every free bet or every like check raise of a gut shot just just got the fold. Uh, which is very lucky, and it does, that doesn't get talked about enough, actually. But um, yeah, every time you play a hand and the guy doesn't have aces or doesn't flop the nuts, like you got lucky. If, if if you play a tournament and that doesn't happen, that's you're, you're doing well from the start. It's not all about the all-ins. I ran very good in those situations, uh, as well as as well as the all-ins. Adam, I have to say, like I know you ultimately lost the heads up, but. You know, phenomenal performance. It really was an incredible result. Well, finally, before I let you go, I have one final thing I've been meaning to ask you. I have to ask you about that mainstream news article from, I don't know when it was, maybe two years ago, about yourself <laughs> and your good friend, Teddy Jackson Spivak. It was a fine article, don't get me wrong, but it included in the headline, which I think at the time was your combined 1.2 million in live winnings, 1.15 million of which I know was yours. Like, I mean, Dara has the decency not to mention in joint articles that we do that we don't have like seven combined triple crowns, for example. <laughs> so was that you trolling Teddy? No, that, that was not. That was not me trolling Teddy. That, that was uh, collated from our friend Ben at school. <laughs> we played a lot of cash games together shout out to ben ashton and uh he's now a journalist for that paper or for that group of papers he, he wasn't trolling he uh collated the uh the numbers for the for the headline and i'm yeah very funny one <laughs> yeah that was just after ted won the uk IPT as well i'll rub it in we don't you <laughs> come on like I think Ted was pretty happy with it. <laughs> well, look, Adam, it has been great fun having you on the show. You're certainly one of the game's good guys. And uh, even though you don't have that bracelet yet, I certainly don't think we can call you uh, Benny's mate, who also plays a bit of mixed game anymore. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate the kind word. Ugh, I guess it's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello and welcome back to the news. Oh. I'm on my last day of holiday here in Malta following what turned out to be my favourite ever Unibet Open stop to date. We had some great events here at this festival. Let's start off with the main event, of course. The Unibet Open main event in Malta was won by Daniel Jacobson. He took home 60,000 euros for his monumental efforts. Henry Pironen finished second place for 43,000 euros and Julian Strapoli came third for €30,000. Excellent results from those three there. We also had a deep stack open event for €300, Euros, which was won by Carol Lepic for €13,500. Shout out here to second place finisher and regular viewer on the Unibet Twitch streams, Darren Irish in Spain McCarthy, who won 8K, and our fellow Unibet ambassador, Dan Muraru, who came third for €5,000. The Super Sacks Dad event was chopped by Maltese local heroes Mark Bayer and Clint Samet. 
Finally, the ladies' event, organised by Dava Byrne, was won by Anne Roos Callens, who beat Daya De Jong heads up, while, of course, Dava Byrne managed a third-place finish herself. Away from the Unibet events now, Jason Kuhn won the 1 million Hong Kong dollar buy-in Triton Montenegro short deck event for 28 million Hong Kong dollars. Loosely translated, Jason Kuhn just won $3.5 million. Congratulations to him. Following up on the short deck win from last week, Phil Ivey got third in this event for $1.7 million. Going briefly to the online world now, um, we saw two great results from Calvin Anderson, one of the best players in the world, if you ask me. Cal already had eight scoop titles to his name, and he just added two more uh, as, this, as this scoop event closes out. Congratulations to him. Is there, isn't there anything else on the script you've given me here, Lappin? Haven't you missed an event off this script? No, that no, seems to be sure? No, 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 no. Finally, there's one event we haven't mentioned yet. I'm not sure why Lappin left this off the script. But the Vendetta in Valletta heads up match just concluded seeing myself beat Lappin 2-0. Did you enjoy the event, Lappin? Nope. No? Didn't enjoy it? It was actually really good fun. I have to say, the build-up was great fun. It was uh, it was very well played by you, I must admit. Thank you very much. You, you took a few funky lines. You depolarized your three-betting pre-flop. That was the plan. That was the plan. Line, which was a little curveball I didn't expect. It definitely put more hands in your range. Post-flop than I could have predicted in certain spots. And I think that sort of induced a big fold, which maybe was the turning point, a hand we might talk about on next week's show when we have a chance to yeah. plug it into the OPO machine. See am, how bad I am. I am looking forward to next week's show just to see yourself and Dara play with the solvers and just analyse that hand in depth and see where the, the turning points in that hand were. Um, in order to distract from your shameful defeat, you uh, you took an interesting line and you've released a viral video, I noticed. Well, it wasn't released by me. Dara Carney <laughs> accidentally took a two-second video of me at the players' party and uh, it has gone viral and I didn't want that to happen at all, to be perfectly honest. 25,000 views and counting. And if you fancy a cringeworthy giggle after the show, why don't you pop over to Dara O'Connor's Facebook page and look at the Or don't. Tweets. Or don't you is totally also should. a perfectly fine option. And retweets would be massively appreciated by myself on that part. Yeah, well, as you say, it would have been quite an ingenious way to deflect from my defeat <laughs> by just trying to put out a viral two-second Ricky Gervais-esque hip thrusting dance move but uh, I didn't do it on purpose I was just trying to have a bit of fun with my friend Kat Arnsby who in the video looks suitably unimpressed it must be said I can't decide what's funnier you're dancing on Kat's face in the video it's brilliant yeah Kat obviously was our Unibet co-commentator with the great Dave von der Hayden for the weekend she had to be kind of arm twisted into coming to the party and, uh, and, and funnily enough after those dance moves did not have to be convinced to leave it that's all from the news this week. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Eni. For a strategy segment this week, well, we have on the show, of course, the great Adam Owen. Uh, he's one of the best mixed game players in the world, for my money anyway. And we thought, well, you know what? We never really do a mixed game strategy segment. I know it's not Dara's forte. It's certainly not mine either. But now that we have you on the show, Adam, Adam, welcome back. Thank you. We thought maybe you could give us a general tip. Some people who maybe play Hold'em all the time or they might play Hold'em in a bit of PLO, perhaps they'd like to dabble in the other games. Uh, if they're going to do that, I guess a sort of a general tip, something like that you can think of. Okay, well, I always say to friends who are trying to get into poker and you know, they, they know I play lots of games, I always tell them to, to start with Raz. I think Raz teaches you a lot of principles in poker that can really... And, and not just at a basic level, but at a deep level. A lot of a lot of my understanding of ranges has developed from my my work in Raz and, and understanding about how to use ranges, how how to make decisions on later streets. So my tip is going to be for Raz, apply it to stud high as well, and to a lesser extent stud high low. It's basically to pay attention and um, don't tick the fold to any bet button, uh, assuming we're playing online, and to uh, just be attentive live when you have a low card. And you only have high cards behind you. It's very simple. Like it's a it's an automatic steal spot. Let's say an extreme example, but also a common one. Uh, the, the bring in's a king. Everyone folds, and uh, we have an ace. Now in live poker, it's common just to not look at your cards to just brazenly raise with any two. So just as long as you're doing that, just avoiding the mistakes in rad is very important. Um, and folding there would be a huge blunder. So even even if you have king king under or two aces. The three aces total just phrase it up complete and uh the guy should fold a lot the king should fold a lot and if he doesn't your favorite to have a better board than him 
Uh, and if he breaks the hands over, basically. Well, at this point, I want to bring in Dara O'Kearney. Dara, you know, obviously you have a lot of Raz experience. Yeah, 10, ten million hands all in Hold'em, um, 63 hands in Raz. <laughs> Um, but I do want to kind of maybe approach this in the spirit of it from a very broad sense. You know, obviously in Hold'em, stealing is a very important part of the game. Tournament poker, we you know we're constantly looking for late position opportunities to steal. So there is something reminiscent about what Adam is talking about here. Yeah, sure. I mean, st- stealing is important in, in in almost any form of poker uh, because it's it's the idea that since it's a game of incomplete information, you could have very bad cards in the hole, but your opponent doesn't know that. I mean, w- one thing I'm I'm frantically searching for the the Raz section in PO and can't find it. The solvers haven't really <laughs> gone after these games yet, so it's going to be interesting to me in years to come as presumably the solvers do arrive. I mean, we, we're already seeing solvers revolutionising PLO now. If uh, if it's going to be the same in, in in games like Raz, I think it will be. I think I think these solvers may exist underground. I haven't had haven't feasted my eyes on any yet, but uh, I've I've heard they they're going. There was a rumor of a few bots on PokerStars at the higher stakes, um, but the former Omaha High Logos and Full Tilt were, were using solvers, and it definitely felt a little strange. Yeah, that, it's probably going to be bad for the game in the long run. Well, of course, it'll be bad for the game in the long run. But yeah, I, I feel like mixed games are still playing quite a long way from GTO. There's still a heavy strategy emphasis for me, at least, on, on exploiting people rather than just playing, trying to play just good and do you, do you think like knowing how game theory applies to hold'em is, is is helpful in the other games yes yeah i i do work on hold'em i wouldn't say i do too much work and some guys might laugh at that comment but uh yeah learning spots in hold'em and applying them to, to mixed is is a common situation there, there are situations where my board might be better than the other guys in raz but i decide to, to check my range just to protect and be able to to continue the hand. I think there's a lot of that. I think I think I'm going to be able to find more of those spots in the future. And yeah, if, if you're looking to get into mixed games, like there's a ton of things you can apply from mixed back into Hold'em as well. So being an all-round better poker player is generally a good thing. So to return to the hand in question, or or the sort of example you gave, obviously the big piece of advice is sort of stay engaged in the game. Look for these steal spots. If you raise up. A card that's obviously better than the bring in or better than maybe someone who might join you as the board plays out you have an equal likelihood of your board looking better than their board you can continue to apply pressure to their perceived board by continuing to barrel those situations i guess are steals and then they're also maybe kind of like two street kind of strategies uh, and i imagine they're very important for kind of making your way navigating your way through uh, raz tournaments are there other games that this sort of general advice is useful for? Well, yes. Uh, in, in Stud High, the, the analog situation is when the guy has a deuce in the bring-in, folds around to you, you have an ace, you have to steal hit. You have ace high, which is a very good hand already in, in, uh, in Stud. So uh, you, you're always stealing that. In general, draw games kind of play out like Hold'em. You have your ranges, you have what you're supposed to play, and then you're, gonna, you're going to expand that based on if it's a tournament, the tournament situation, or who's in the blinds or who else is at the rest of the table. But in general, stills are important, and it's important to be paying attention and decide what your best open spots are. Uh, I, I should add, um, in Raz, basically every card ace to seven is pretty much the same in value. Obviously an ace is better than a seven, but let's say seven, six, five as a starting hand, that is 45% against the best starting hand, three, two, ace. So you can see that a lot of Raz is, is just a card catching contest. You're going to be getting a great price because it's limit poker. You're supposed to cool down and get to showdown quite a lot. So if, if you have a seven or lower showing and there are people behind you with yeah only nines or higher, you have to steal. That's the point I'd like to, to make in full. That makes a lot of sense. Now with that in mind, Dara, I'll give you the final word. Does it tempt you at all to expand into all these other poker games with the World Series looming? No. <laughs> And that's it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Adam Owen. Thank you. Pleasure being on, guys. Thank you very much. 
We're joined now by one of the most famous names in poker, high-stakes cash game player, WSOP runner-up, WSOP Europe final tablist, and WPT final tablist. When she takes a break from being a high roller, she is a poker broadcaster and sideline reporter. On June 26th of this year, she will be inducted into the Women in Poker Hall of Fame. She is, of course, Maria Ho. Maria, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Maria, we first met in Foxwoods, Connecticut, uh, way back in, I think it was 2009. You were already pretty famous in poker at that stage but it would be fair to say that poker wasn't your only route to notoriety you got to Hollywood Week on a season of American Idol I didn't watch that one but I did watch every minute of The Amazing Race the season you played that with your friend Tiffany Michelle and I have seen you do a wicked karaoke version of Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back so my question to you is do you ever wish that your career had gone more in that direction? Um, No I mean I feel like that's more of a hobby to me I'm definitely passionate about it but Um, As we all know, the music industry is very tough and shockingly probably significantly tougher than poker, even though poker is a tough industry to be in as well. So I don't know. It's not something I've ever really thought about pursuing seriously, but I enjoy doing it. Other poker players have tried their hands in various reality shows. Jean-Robert Ballon was on Survivor. Annie Duke did Celebrity Apprentice. And more recently, Kevin Martin won Big Brother Canada. Uh, My co-host David always talks about wanting to go on MasterChef. There's always a risk on these shows because they basically cut them to create heroes and villains. And it wouldn't require too much editing to make David look like a very bad guy. Actually, I'm not sure he could be made ever to look like one of the good guys. <laughs> Was that something you were afraid of that they would edit to make you a villain? I guess a little bit. I didn't worry about it too much because at the end of the day, you know, they can do wonders in editing, but you also kind of give them something to work with. And I didn't feel like by nature I'm a villain. Um, I'm sure they can make me out to be one. But um, I wouldn't say that that's like a big concern of mine. But of course, you always when you put yourself out there in any kind of um, media setting, whether it's on a reality show, or even, you know, in an interview, I think there's the risk of being perceived in a different way but but yeah I mean no I would I wouldn't say like that was a huge concern otherwise I maybe would not have gone on the show to to begin with it's fair enough you should see some of the edits I do on on our interviews here I can I can totally <laughs> villainize any guest um you graduated in uh, 2005 with a major in communications and a minor in law what sort of role if any do you think taking those subjects played in molding you for poker and broadcasting well I mean Definitely the communications part had a direct correlation to the broadcasting. When I majored in communications, I definitely thought about pursuing a career in broadcast journalism. I had kind of envisioned myself being a news anchor or something like that. So there were some tie-ins that I was already kind of trying to develop with my major for that specific goal in mind. And as far as poker-wise, I mean, I would just say that the general sense of you know, being very independent in college and kind of, you know, I I was someone who always went against the grain in college. I didn't really follow, you know, one defined path. And I would say in general, that kind of led me into poker and that kind of prepared me for what poker is essentially is just kind of been this journey that I've been on that's been different from, you know, most of my friends that I went to school with. And it's not, it's very non-traditional. And I think that kind of symbolize just the way that I've always gone through traditional situations such as, you know, college as an institution or whatever it may be. And I've always kind of been interested in psychology as well. Like I took a few psychology classes in college, even though I didn't end up majoring in it. And obviously there's a big tie in between psychology and poker. So yeah, in little ways, but definitely I did not set out um, in college with the idea that I would become a professional poker player, but I can see how there's been things along the way that have definitely helped me in this industry now. Being a bit of a main event specialist, you were the last woman standing uh, in 2007 when you finished 38th for almost a quarter of a million and in 2014 you finished 77th. You were also the last woman standing at WSOP Europe in uh, 2011 and again in 2017 when you of course finished 6th. Um, I've played it 10 times now and I'm yet 
to actually cash the main event. What is it about the main event that brings out your best? I think it's, you know, the, the idea that you have a shot at it once a year. Obviously, that you can say that about any major event, but of course, there's more than one WPT main event a year. Um, and so the WSOP main event is always going to be so special in that way. And I think I'm just really good in deep structure tournaments. I also have a very good idea of how to play against more recreational players, which is what WSOP main event is, especially in America. Um, you know, your table draws, especially in the early days, are filled with people that might not be, you know, tournament pros or tournament grinders. And I have a good approach. I think I have, uh, you know, developed a really good strategy to play against those kinds of players specifically well speaking of uh, that wsop final table last year you played a multi-way pot where you flopped a set of tens on a monochrome board faced a big shove from neil farrell a former guest of ours with two players behind we actually analyzed this spot in our strategy segment the following week the hand pretty much went viral after you found a fold and you came under an awful lot of public criticism for the laydown how do you feel about that hand now and uh, how well do you take criticism of your game in general? I feel fine about the hand. It was, as I've kind of said in, in other interviews or just even among friends, I, I felt fine with the fold in the sense of I knew that GTO-wise and all of the things that come into the situation into play like in that specific scenario tells me I shouldn't fold. But I've also come to just trust my, I don't want to say instinct. It wasn't like an instinct that told me to fold. It wasn't like me thinking, oh, I know that um, Neil's going to get there on the later streets when I put my tournament life on the line on the flop, or I know that the two players to act behind me has me beat. It wasn't like that kind of instinct. It's just a comfortability of knowing, okay, regardless, this is a super high variance spot for my tournament life. And I didn't want to take that spot. And I think it's okay to sometimes go against game theory or go against what you know might be the right play and and make the play that you feel like is the right decision for you at the time. It's not like I'm ever going to sit there and defend that fold from any other standpoint. I'm just going to say that I've played this game for a long enough time to realize that you are going to make quote-unquote mistakes or you might do something wrong, although I think wrong is very <laughs> subjective in poker sometimes. Um, and it's just about whether or not you feel comfortable with your decision. Um, so I feel fine about the fold. And in terms of taking criticism, I think I've learned to just be, you know, have, have very thick skin when it comes to criticism in general. Um, and of course, there's a part of you that, you know, nobody's ever immune to the fact that, you know, they might feel like they have something to prove sometimes or that they don't want to be seen as bad at something or doing something wrong. But um, I, I do think that overall, I do take criticism better than most people might, generally speaking. And also in comparison to the way that maybe I took criticism five or 10 years ago, I think that I've worked really hard on that part, um, especially because, uh, you know, when you put yourself out there a lot, you know, whether it's playing on streams or being, you know, somewhat um, public in poker, I think that you just have to learn to kind of brush things off. And so to me, like, I'm ha fine with people criticizing me. Um, and I don't expect everybody to understand every decision that I've ever made. Um, but I can stand by my decisions and say that that was something that I feel okay about. You've been the Battle of Malta host. Uh, you've been commentator and analyst on the Heart and Poker Tour since 2013 and on the Super High Roller Bowl. You've also been a pundit for the WSOP. If push came to shove and you could only be a player or work in the industry, <laughs> but not both, which would you choose? That is such a tough question. <laughs> I really don't know how to answer that. Um, I think maybe if you asked me uh, last year or two years ago, I would say I would choose to be a player. But I think if if I'm thinking just long-term and where I want to go from here, um, I think l the lifestyle of doing broadcasting fits me more now. Um, you know, I'm just getting a little burnt out from the traveling. Um, I still love the game very much. And I feel like in broadcasting, I can still somewhat, you know, have that love for the game, even though I would 
be more coming from the outside looking in. Um, but I could still have, you know, have that come across in my broadcasting without having to play. And I do think that it just maybe suits me in the long run for now. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky balancing act. It's, it's one I'm thinking about at the moment as well. I, I do a decent amount of commentary and I sort of, you know, segue towards Twitch and these kind of other forms of poker entertainment. And I do feel as though there would be a huge compromise if I stopped playing. I just know how quickly the game moves on and it, it would just, you know, I'd be worried that what I was commentating or what I was saying or advice I was dispensing would just be outdated so quickly. Yeah, I suppose that is always a concern. Um a few years ago, you participated in the GPL. Uh, we had one of the league's commentators, Laura Cornelius, on the show last week. You were captain of the LA Sunsets and you drafted breaking bad star Aaron Paul. Uh, there's a big Hollywood crossover with poker. Loads of TV shows back in the 2000s featured celebrities. Obviously, Molly's Game featured a mix of high-stakes players and Hollywood A-listers. Most TV poker these days doesn't feature the same star power. Why do you think that is? I think there's just still an overall stigma on being associated with poker. I think especially in American culture, it is still seen as gambling and there is still just a general movement um, within society and politics that I think there's still this straying away from the gambling vibe because, you know, they want to put this like wholesome, it just has like tie-ins with, I'm sure, uh, religion and especially people that like live in the Bible Belt of America and just perpetuating this whole idea that America as a society shouldn't condone gambling and because poker is still associated with gambling even though it's very obviously a skill game I think people who are super high profile don't really want to be publicly associated with it even if in Hollywood there's plenty of home games and there's plenty of people playing and you know athletes all the time talk about how on the bus from traveling from one game to another on planes they're playing these kinds of games but I don't think they want to be on TV playing them Um, and so I think you know when the stigma or the association between uh, poker and gambling, you know, kind of disappears, then I think we'll see more of these people come out of the woodworks, but they're definitely out there. Um, I know you've always been a big student of the game. Um, Actually, on a recent podcast appearance with uh, Remco, you made a really nice analogy about the time before solvers. Uh, It was a bit like the time before Google in the sense that you could be pretty sure about something being correct, but now there was a way to categorically prove or disprove it uh, you said that your game's evolution has been influenced by solver based knowledge recently but also by other players uh, which players have influenced you the most and was it always a good influence I would say that you know like five years ago there was a time when um, I would talk quite a bit of poker with uh, Selbst because we lived together one summer um, in a house with you know Livbury and Vanessa Russo and it was actually really nice to kind of have that ongoing poker conversation just among female poker players actually that was quite interesting I've dated a couple people in the poker industry so obviously that's gonna naturally come up and then um, my close-knit group of friends which include uh, Christian Harder has been probably one of my longest friends in poker and there's a lot of people that come and go in poker but Christian's actually been around this entire time that I have as well and so we you know we definitely have talked pretty consistently throughout the years. Um, and one time I, you know, shared a place with Chris Mormon and his wife and we had played online some. So just a wide array of people, Daniel Negreanu sometimes, I mean, just a really wide array of people, which is really great because I love to hear their insight and all of them kind of have different approaches to the game, which is really cool because I think that's always the best way to learn is not exactly to ask the person that might play exactly like you or has the same approach as you do. I listened to that interview as well and in it you made a point which I think speaks to recreational players and maybe other pro players too. Uh, You stopped just short of saying that the modern GTO approach to poker has taken the fun out of the game in the sense that you rely less these days on your instincts, uh, spidey senses or hunches and much more on range analysis, bluffing frequencies, etc. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I I feel like, I yeah, I don't want to go as far to say it's taken the fun out of the game, but I definitely feel like there's a place for that. Um, and obviously, live poker is just kind of the arena, especially any kind of arena that is 
sometimes dominated by primarily recreational players. I think it, we just have to kind of remember when we first started playing, most of us at least, you know, there's definitely a generation that's here now that they've only played in the solver age. But um, I think we just have to remember that the way to keep this game going and thriving is to make sure that we aren't doing things to kind of um, make this game less appealing for people who are trying to get into the game. And so obviously there's like this movement now with certain online sites trying to take away the ability of for people to use solvers while they play online and things like that. And I think it's just because everything's cyclical in a way and um, poker is still different from a game like chess where I think um, that's obviously very highly accepted that chess can be a solved game or people can play it pretty much perfectly. Um, but I think because the human element in poker is so strong um, that I just think that you can't take that away from the game itself. And so, yeah, I, I'm not like, I don't know. I, I'm not somebody who's going to be on extreme side of any spectrum. I'm not somebody who's like, okay, let's get rid of that entirely. But I definitely want to advocate some for just the pe people that are trying to get into the game the way that we tried to get in the game, the way that I tried to get in the game 10 years ago. And that game was already intimidating as it was. And to think now of people, and some people aren't even knowledgeable. Some recreational players don't even realize how far the game has come and how solved the game is now. But there's the recreational players that do somewhat know about this. And I think it just makes it even more daunting for them. And so I, I definitely think that there should be some kind of call for our industry for an environment where we kind of return poker to some of its roots and still think that we can still rely on the fact that it's pretty amazing to to see how far poker strategy has evolved and i think that's so cool to be a part of it and also to know people who basically the way their minds work is basically like a computer i think that's really cool for the game but i just don't want it to take away from the enjoyment i know we're here to make money but but I used to like this game a lot more when I actually didn't make money from it. So I just think there's just little things that we have to remember of like all of our origins of what attracted us to the game in the first place. And certainly that was never something that we could have foreseen. And so I don't want it to dominate our industry as much as it has lately. Yeah, I, I guess it's kind of inevitable. I mean, you mentioned chess. I played chess before poker and chess has certainly now very much uh, come down to how, how well people learn from computers because the computers are just so much better than humans and always will be. Um, I don't think we'll ever reach that stage in poker because there's a couple of things intrinsic to poker which prevent it. First of all, the, the game tree is just so, so huge that um, the game can't realistically be solved. Or even if you could solve it completely, the um, solution couldn't be stored. And the other thing is the fact that it's a multiplayer game uh, makes mm -hmm. makes makes it particularly problematic for game theory. But you also mentioned there too about recreational players. I mean, it's it always surprises me how you know. I mean, recreational players. You said like a lot of them don't even realize how far the game has advanced, and that's definitely true. But then on on, on the other side, it's it's relatively easy to get access to information now uh, with training sites and so on. And not so long ago, I played uh, in a live tournament and um, an elderly recreational lady check raised on the flop and the young online guy that she was up against thought and then shrugged and I get folded guessing. I think, well, she always has it here. And she showed a bluff and she said to him, I have the knotted hand, hand advantage there. So you, you, I guess you have to fold. Uh, he, he was pretty stunned by that. So, so, so yeah, it is interesting how quick the game develops, even even among the recreational players. I mean, when I think back to a f five years ago, uh, what, what the average recreational was like compared to now, um, it's it's definitely very different. Yeah, absolutely. Marie, you mentioned there a moment ago about how you you kind of rarely fall too far to the extreme on spectrums. Uh, one thing I've noticed uh, is definitely a feature of your game is your very calm, composed, collected table demeanor. So much of what we do in poker involves acts of suppression, I guess, as we look to travel that middle road. Uh, are there any pitfalls of training yourself not to be happy or not to be too sad about outcomes? Yeah, I feel like I do a pretty good job of compartmentalizing what I do um, within my job. I feel like outside of poker, I'm actually 
I don't want to say it has like the negative effect of where I would say that I'm overly emotional outside of poker, but I definitely allow myself to feel emotions away from the tables. And I think while I do a really good job of keeping my calm and, and, you know, being very composed at the table, I think in my regular life, I actually try to do as much as I can to kind of make sure that I'm not letting it seep into, you know, my everyday life. So I think I have a good balance where that's concerned. I think having a lot of friends that don't play poker really helps. I think they kind of keep me grounded and just hearing them, whether it's like talk about their jobs or, you know, the things that are happening in their life, because sometimes it's really easy to lose perspective when you lead the kind of lifestyle that some poker players do. Um, I think that all of it just really helps me put everything in perspective. And that also includes just making sure that I'm still developing as like a human in the way that I want to and making sure that I'm not that I'm not somehow like stunting my growth in like the EQ department, I guess. As David mentioned at the start, Maria, you were inducted into the Women in Poker Hall of Fame in June. Uh, firstly, congratulations. And secondly, were you surprised by the news? Thank you. Uh, I was very surprised. Um, I was definitely surprised to even be nominated and to be voted in. Um, my first year eligible is just something that I would have never expected not only were all of the nominees so deserving of being inducted themselves, but um, I also feel like while I have spent, you know, over a decade in the, in this industry, I still feel like I have a lot to give to the industry. I still have a lot to accomplish. Um, and so for people, especially my peers and people that I look up to myself, kind of validate my career up until this point that's very humbling yeah Marie, but, but you and your co-inductee lip store creator lupe soto uh have done an awful lot for women's poker that's undeniable uh, but also for the status of women in the mainstream game um our fellow unibet ambassador diva Byrne works very hard growing the game on this side of the pond organizing ladies only events helping to promote the queen rules campaign However, there is always a tension there in my mind that ladies events, uh, ladies groups, ladies forums, while they are tremendous Trojan horses to get women to play the game who might ordinarily not, they also represent a sort of segregation of women and maybe even contribute to the notion some might have that women are to be taken less seriously as competitors. I must admit I felt a similar tension over the Women in Poker Hall of Fame. Barbara Enright, Linda Johnson and Jennifer Harmon are all in the Poker Hall of Fame. Do you feel a similar tension about the honor? I wouldn't say like tension is the word. I I do agree to a certain extent about what ladies events might signify. I support ladies events, but I still understand that the presence of them, them can somehow actually hurt us in some ways and help us. But I also know firsthand, which is something that I think only females in the game can experience, is how hard it was kind of to get into the game in the beginning and how I was definitely in situations that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, that made me feel maybe a little intimidated. And I don't want that same environment. I don't think every woman should have to go through that in order to get into the game. And so obviously ladies events opens those doors for them. It doesn't have to be like a struggle for people to kind of like fight their way to, to want to love this game and to want to show up and play and stuff like that. So obviously that's why I support ladies events. So I wouldn't say I feel tension about there being a ladies hall of fame. I mean, I, I still want to, I, I mean, my personal goal obviously is to make it into the hall of fame. But I, yeah, I still think that there's ways to kind of appreciate things that might highlight some of the differences without necessarily, I think it's all how we kind of take it and how we represent ourselves in whatever environment that it is. You know, it's not just in poker, but there's all of these other heavily male dominated industries out there. And I think there's still ways to kind of acknowledge the difference and to acknowledge the fact that we know that there is no inherent disadvantage to being a female in the game and by showing up at a ladies event or accepting the honor of being inducted into the women's hall of fame i'm not saying that i i'm not i don't belong or i'm not as good as my male the the males in the game but i'm also just you know i i think i'm embracing what it is for like 
the time being. And I think there will be a time when we move away from that. And I think that'll be a great change for us too. It's a great way of looking at it. Finally, Maria, you're coming up on 50 WSAP caches and Vegas is just around the corner. Are you planning a heavy schedule this year? Yeah, I have, uh, you know, usually about 35 events on my schedule. And I don't uh, usually get to play all those, you know, when I make, you know, day twos or threes, or, you know, sometimes things come up. But I do have as, you know, big of a schedule as I have had in the previous years. And it's funny, I'm coming up on, I think, uh, becoming first in the all-time female caches at the World Series of Poker. Like, I'm just, I've always kind of played mixed games. So the WSOP has always been a, a time where I can kind of play other games outside of No Limit. And so because of that, I think I've definitely had an advantage over the years with being able to cash in so many tournaments. But, you know, just another cool accolade if I get there. And I think it's just in general, I'm still pursuing the goal of winning a WSOP bracelet. So I guess the more caches I have, the closer hopefully I will get to that at some point. Well, Maria, it remains for me to say thank you so much for coming on the show. You've made a huge contribution to poker, both on and off the felt. Uh, You're a very worthy inductee into this Women in Poker Hall of Fame. And I'm actually going to be in Vegas at the time. So I hope to see that ceremony. Thank you so much. Thanks, Maria. 31% of those polled described by dance moves as creepy, while 27% describe them as sexy. Uh, This song is definitely for those of you in the latter category. This is a 1992 dirty rap classic and karaoke favourite. This is Sir Mix-a-Lot and Baby Got Back. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. And when a girl walks in with an itty bitty waist and a round thing in your face, you get sprung. Wanna pull up tough because you notice that butt was stuck. Deep in the jeans she's wearing. I'm hooked and I can't stop staring. Smooth skin, you say you wanna get in my bins? Well, use me, use me, cause you ain't that average groupie. I seen her dancing, to hell with romance, and she's sweat, wet. Got it going like a turbo vet. I'm tired of magazines, send flat butts all the thing. Had the average black man and ask him that. She got a pack much back. So, fellas, yeah, fellas, yeah, cause your girlfriend got the butt. Hell, hell yeah. Yeah. Shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake that healthy butt. Baby got ballet. Here's my scandal. I want to get you home and uh, double up. Uh, uh. I ain't talking about Playboy, because silicone parts are made for toys. I want them real thick and juicy. So find that juicy double. Mix a lot's in trouble. Begging for a piece of that bubble. So I'm looking at rock videos. Not me bimbos walking like hoes. You can have them bimbos. I'll keep my women like Flojo. A word to the thick soul sisters. I want to get with ya. I won't cuss or hit ya. But I got to be straight when I say I want to. Till the break of dawn. Baby got it going on. A lot of simps won't like this song. Cause them punks like to hit and quit it. And I'd rather stay and play. Cause I'm long and I'm strong. And I'm down to get the friction on. So ladies. Stick it out, even white boys got the shout, baby got back. Nine hundred. 
with Mix-a-Lot and kick them nasty thoughts. Baby got back. <laughs> again to Adam and Maria next week's show will feature legendary poker player and complainer The Chainsaw Alan Kessler and popular poker Twitch streamer Spraggy until then from Dara Ian and myself good night and good luck (laughs) 